0: Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Book of Psalms. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McLarty.
1: Our plan, our plan is to be here tonight. For those of you who wondered where you were tonight, you are here tonight. And then we will be here next week, and then the week after is the conference up in Gladeville. And so we will not be meeting here that week. So plan accordingly. Tonight we are going to be looking... At Psalm 51, so you can turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11. Well, the reason for that is, through the years, I have made the mistake of assuming that people knew their Old Testament history and that they knew all the different stories and background, and oftentimes people did not know, so I don't want to just assume that. Instead, we're going to start the evening by reading what to some of you will be a very familiar story. But it is the backstory, it is the inspiration for Psalm 51. So rather than just launch straight into Psalm 51, we're going to read the backstory. That will be the first half of the night. The second half of the night, we'll be looking at the Psalm itself. I will tell you now that the theme of the Psalm quite appropriately, is the antidote to guilt isn't you. The antidote to your guilt is always the loving kindness of God. The same way that I have emphasized for years and years that the cure for your sin problem can't be you. Because after all, you are your problem. So you are not your solution. God's grace is the solution to your sin problem. And God's loving kindness and grace and forgiveness is the antidote to your guilt. What we're going to read about here in 2 Samuel is David's astounding guilt. I mean, King David, who even God says is a man after his own heart, nevertheless was a fleshly man and since we understand the biblical doctrine of total depravity that human beings are sinful coming out the womb in fact tonight david is going to say in sin did my mother conceive me and he wasn't saying that his mother had an illicit affair which resulted in his being born, and he wasn't saying that he was born out of wedlock or anything like that. He was saying, from the moment that I existed as a human being, even at my conception, I was a sinner because I'm a human being. So David's understanding of man's depravity was not just theologically accurate, but as we read this story, you will understand that it is experientially accurate as well. Here's what it says. 2 Samuel, starting at chapter 11. Then it happened in the spring at the time when the kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon, and they besieged Rabbah, but David stayed at Jerusalem. The first conflict is right there in that very first verse. During the time that the kings are out to battle, David's at home. He hung out in Jerusalem. Now, when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful in appearance. So from his roof, he was being a peeping David and could see the roof of the houses around him. And he could see his neighbor's house. And he saw his neighbor's wife bathing. And because she was beautiful in appearance, David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is not that Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And David sent messengers and took her. And when she came to him, he lay with her. And when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. And the woman conceived. And she sent and told David and said, I am pregnant. Okay, so here's David's dilemma. Even after he has been told, this is someone else's wife. This is the wife of Uriah the Hittite, who, by the way, is on the battlefield right now fighting for your country, for your nation, for your people, and for your crown. But while he's on the battlefield, David is sleeping with Uriah's wife. We're not told a lot about how David managed to get her to do it outside of he was king. And I think he was used to getting whatever he wanted. And when men are uh, able to have whatever they want, they usually choose badly. And even David, the man after God's own heart, chose to commit adultery with his neighbor's wife. Mm-hmm. So then David sent to Joab, after he found out that Bathsheba was now pregnant, David sent to Joab saying, send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent Uriah to David. And when David came to him, David asked concerning the welfare of Joab and the people and the state of the war. And then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out from the king's house And a present from the king was sent out after him. So the whole point was David was getting Uriah to come home so that he would hurry up and go in and sleep with his wife so that when his wife turned up pregnant, it would look like that was Uriah's baby. So David is now compounding his sin with lies. Not only has he committed adultery and impregnated his neighbor's wife, he's now trying to cover up his sin by making it look like Uriah got her pregnant. But Uriah was a man of integrity, we find out in verse 9. Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of the king and did not go down to his own house. Now when they told David, saying, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in temporary shelters, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife? By your life and the life of your soul, I will not do this thing. So Uriah, a soldier of great integrity, would not allow him to have the comfort of food and drink in his own house, sleep with his own wife, while his own countrymen were living in temporary shelters in the midst of battle. Well, that certainly confounded David and David's plan. So David doubles down. And David said to Uriah, stay here today also and tomorrow, and then I'll let you go. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And Now David called him, and he ate and drank before him, and he made Uriah drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his bed with his Lord's servants, but he did not go down to his own house. David thought, maybe if I can loosen him up a little bit get some liquor into him, he'll be willing to finally go home and sleep with his wife. I have to get him to do that in order to cover my own sin. Now it came about in the morning that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. Okay, so now he's conspiring his next plan, which is, okay, well then if he won't sleep with Bathsheba, his wife, so that it appears that he impregnated her I just have to get rid of him. I have to commit, essentially, murder by proxy. So he is sending a letter by the hand of Uriah the Hittite, a letter that tells Joab to put Uriah in the place of greatest danger in the hope that he would be killed. It came about in the morning that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. Uriah's carrying his own death sentence. And he had written in the letter saying, place Uriah in the front line of the fiercest battle, and then withdraw from him so that he may be struck down and die. So David has told Joab to put Uriah in the place of greatest danger because David now is just trying to get rid of Uriah. Compounding his sin. I mean, how many sins is this in a row? Lying and adultery and impregnating his neighbor's wife, and now he's committing murder. This is the man after God's own heart, remember. Mm. And he himself falls for the sins of his flesh. So it was that Joab kept watch on the city and that he put Uriah at the place where he knew there were valiant men And the men of the city went out and fought against Joab. And some of the people among David's servants fell. They died. And Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and reported to David all the events of the war. And he charged the messenger, saying, When you have finished telling all the events of the war to the king, and if it happens that the king's wrath rises and he says to you, why did you go so near to that city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot you down from the wall? Who struck down Abimelech, the son of Jerebasheth? Did not a woman throw an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? So you're going to go and report this to the king, and you're going to tell him that we went and attacked the city And we brought the front line right up to the wall to the point where even women could throw rocks down and kill our men. And David's going to get upset with you and his wrath is going to rise up against you. And when his wrath does rise against you, then you will say, and oh yeah, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. That's going to be the good news to David. So tell him about the war. He's not going to be happy. But tell him the plan worked. Uriah is dead. So the messenger departed and came and reported to David all that Joab had sent him to tell. And the messenger said to David, The men prevailed against us and came out against us in the field, but we pressed them as far as the entrance of the gate. Moreover, the archers shot at your servants from the wall So that some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is also dead. Then David said to the messenger, thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this thing displease you, for the sword devours one as well as the other. Make your battle against the city stronger and overthrow it, and so encourage him. Now, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when the time of mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife, and then she bore him a son. But the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of Yahweh. Well, yeah, even we, his fellow sinners, know that everything he did there was wrong. But by taking Bathsheba as his wife, then when Bathsheba bore a child, they could say, well, it is David's child, but now it's okay because now they're married. So the end of the story is that David thinks he has covered his previous crimes by bringing about what looked on the surface like a good outcome. Well, God wasn't going to let that remain. Chapter 12 tells us. Then the Lord sent Nathan the prophet to David. And he came to him and he said, There were two men in one city. One was rich and the other was poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he bought and he nourished, and it grew up together with him and his children. And it would eat of his bread and drink from his cup and lie in his bosom and was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. In other words, the rich man took the poor man's one single lamb. That baby ewe lamb was loved by its owner, but the rich man who was more powerful took that one ewe lamb, killed it, prepared it to feed a stranger. So David, hearing that story, verse 5 says, then David's anger burned greatly against that man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives surely that man who has done this deserves to die and he must make restitution for that lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no compassion. So David's all full of righteous indignation how dare that man do such a thing? How dare that rich man oppress that poor man and take the thing he loved? And Nathan said to David you Are that man? Mm -hmm. Thus says the Lord God of Israel It is I who appointed you king over Israel. It is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care. And I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. Why have you despised the word of Yahweh by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and you have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he shall lie with your wives in broad daylight. By the way, that happened when Absalom rose up against David when David left Jerusalem running for his life, Absalom set up a tent on the roof of the king's house so that all Israel could see him going into the tent with David's wives. Verse 12 says, Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing to you before all Israel and under the sun. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord against Yahweh. And Nathan said to David, and this is the astounding part of the story. This is what leads us to the psalm. That is all backstory to it. But listen to what Nathan says. After David admits, I have sinned against Yahweh, Nathan said to David, the Lord also has taken away your sin. You shall not die. Isn't that astounding? Okay, so how guilty was David? Just completely guilty. And yet God took away his sin. Murder, adultery, big stuff. Mm -hmm. Not little things. Big, obvious things before Israel. Even used Joab as an accomplice in order to accomplish the death of Uriah the Hittite so that he could have the beautiful woman as his wife. And here is God saying, I gave you everything. And if that hadn't been enough for you, I would have given you more. And yet you had to sinfully, rebelliously go chase after the wife of your neighbor who you murdered. God had every right at that point to judge him and judge him harshly take away his life. But David had something. He had a fail-safe in place, which was that God himself had made a covenant with David, that it was through the progeny of David that Christ the Messiah was going to come and that Christ was going to sit on the throne of David, ruling over the 12 tribes of David. And for that reason, David and his progeny had to continue, and so God's faithfulness to himself and to his own word becomes the inspiration for God to say that he had taken away the sin of David, which is absolutely astounding. The Lord has taken away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given occasion... To the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. The wages of sin is death. That's what Paul tells us. When someone sins, someone dies. Now God allowed in the Old Testament that animals could die as a substitute for sinful human beings. But then we read in the New Testament, the book of Hebrews in particular, that the blood of those goats and those bulls could never fully expiate sin. It could never take sin away completely. If it ever had, they would have finally stopped doing the sacrifices because the sacrifice worked. It finally took away the sin of the people once and for all. It was only the blood of Christ that ever accomplished full and complete atonement and redemption. In other words, as sinful as you are, as depraved as you are, even though you're a Christian, and I don't doubt your Christianity, even though you're a Bible-believing person, even though you're living out your life after a Christian worldview and a Christian form of living and walking, I'll bet every one of you when you examine your life can think of times when during your Christianity, you were just as failed as David was. And the reason that God ultimately did not destroy you and ultimately will save you is because of the blood of the new covenant that has already established your salvation, which God planned before the foundation of the world. So it is God's word, God's covenant, and God's determination that is going to save you despite you. The same way that God is saving David despite David. Well, sure enough, you know the rest of the story. That child does die. During the time that the child is sick, David won't eat he won't drink and his servants keep coming to him and saying you you need to eat something you've got to drink and he just lays on the floor before God and then when they come to him and say the child's dead actually they come to him and they can't say anything David realizes it and the child's dead so David gets up and gets something to eat and they question him and they say wait that's all backwards why why now that the child is dead why are you eating now and he said while the child was alive there was still the possibility of god's mercy but now god has made his decision known now the child is dead basically david says we have to carry on there's work to do and he gets up and eats and accepts the decision and the judgment of god but then that very same couple bathsheba and David produce Solomon. And out of all of David's wives and out of all of David's children, it is Solomon that God picks not only to be the next king of the 12 tribes, it is Solomon who builds the temple to God for the worship of God, the place where God chose to place his name. So astounding grace and mercy from God in the face of nothing but sinfulness. And if you know anything about Solomon, even though he had tremendous wisdom so that the other kings would come and marvel at the wisdom of Solomon, nevertheless, Solomon loved many strange women, which God said in the law that the Israelites were not to intermarry with the women of the nations around them. Solomon did that, and then he was pulled away to worshiping foreign gods, Because of his wives, how many wives? 700 wives and 300 concubines because 700 women was not enough. And so then 300 extras left over. I mean, that was a busy man. And as a result of loving all those foreign women, his heart was pulled away. And nevertheless, God used him to establish the worship of Yahweh in Jerusalem. The lesson here is... God keeps dealing with sinners, terrible sinners, rebellious sinners, in order to accomplish his good pleasure. And that should make us all feel good about those times when we ourselves are prone to wander. Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. And yet it is God who protects us, calls us back, keeps us safe, builds a hedge around us forgives us for our iniquities because of a covenant he has already made with us through the blood of Jesus Christ. It's an astounding thing. All right, now let's go to Psalm 51. That was all introduction. Psalm 51 begins with a superscript that says, for the choir director, a Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him, after he had gone into Bathsheba. So now you know the backstory. David wrote this psalm right after Nathan said to him, You are that man. As soon as David realized his guilt, he wrote this. First thing I want you to notice is that David does not get busy cleaning up his life. David already tried to manipulate the circumstances and details of his life, and he only made everything worse. Instead, he realizes that he has to cry out to God because, as I said at the beginning, the antidote, the cure for sin and guilt cannot be you. It has to be God. Be gracious to me, O God, according to thy loving kindness. Chesed is the Hebrew word there. I didn't quite get enough phlegm going for the beginning of that word. Chesed. But what it means is so much more than loving kindness. I've been reading a little bit about the etymology of loving kindness and why that was used as the word to interpret chesed, because usually that is interpreted as some form of grace But the Hebrew dictionary defines the word as demonstrable loyalty, which I found fascinating. What it means is so much more than just grace based on emotion or feelings. It is a demonstration of grace that is the result of God's loyalty to himself and his people. And so David, understanding that, understanding that God had already made a covenant with him, and understanding the unchanging nature of God, was able to go to God and say, forgive me, be gracious to me, not because of me, not because of anything I did, not because I'm worth it, but because you yourself are loyal in a demonstrable way by the fact that you make and keep covenants with your people. On that basis, David can cry for grace. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your own compassion, blot out my transgressions. Blot out my sinfulness. Blot out my rebellion against you. Again, not based on me, but according to the greatness, the grandness, the eternal nature of your own compassion toward sinners. Since you know that we are just dust, since you know that we are naturally driven by the sinful proclivities of our flesh, since you know that about us, be compassionate toward us. According to the greatness of thy compassion, Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. David's going for as much terminology as he can in order to describe his own guilt. He calls it transgressions. He calls it iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Now he's admitting it's sinfulness. For I know my own transgression, says verse 3. I know my transgression. My sin is ever before me. You know, if you have the conscience, if you have the mind of Christ, if you have the spirit of God inside you, the truth is you know your own sinfulness. You know the things you have done and the places you have been, and it should drive you crazy. I heard a story some years ago about a preacher who preached a you know message about how Christians feel the weight, the guilt of their own sin. And afterwards, a man came up to him and said, I understand what you've said. I understand what you've preached. And I'm a Christian, and I believe the Bible, but I don't feel that great weight of sin that you're talking about. And the preacher said, You know, if a 900 pound elephant sits on a dead man, he doesn't feel it either. (laughs) Because if you are awake to the things of God, if you do have the Spirit of God, if you are aware of the great price that He has paid for you, then you do feel your weight of sin. You do feel your rebellion against God, and it is ever before you. And if it were up to you to fix it, you'd despair. That's why grace is such a beautiful word, such a wonderful word. It's why it's right in our name, because it is grace and God's loving kindness and his faithfulness to himself and to his son that is the only hope any of us have. If God didn't keep his hand on us, we would all make David look like an amateur. David says, I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned. And I have done what is evil in your sight. Now, that's a fact. Even though we may offend our brethren, even though we may be mean to other people, even though we may not have that heart of compassion all the time, even though we might get fed up with somebody, Even though our interactions are human to human, the truth is all sin ultimately is against God. And God is an infinitely holy God, which makes your sin against him an infinite sin, which is why he is completely and right and just in judging you for your sin and judging you eternally for your sin. David seems aware of all that. And he says against thee and thee only I have sinned and I have done what is evil in thy sight so that you are justified when you do speak and you are blameless when you do judge. If God judged David eternally, if he killed him right there and then and then sent him to outer darkness forever, David says you're completely justified in doing that because I have sinned against you. And it's only you that I have sinned against, and that is before me all the time. I recognize my own sin and my own rebellion against you, and if you judged me for it, you'd be completely correct and blameless. Because, verse 5, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. David says, when I was born, when I came out of my mother's womb, I was born as an iniquitous, sinful person. And then it's almost like he thought about that and said, no, it was before that. Because then he says, and in sin my mother conceived me. At the very point of conception, I was a sinner. Mm. Behold, you do desire truth in the innermost being. And in the hidden part, thou wilt make me know wisdom. Couple quick things there. David says it's much more than behavior. The behavior of human beings is just a reflection of what goes on inside them. The sin that is manifest in your heart and mind is why you act the way you do. David realizes that the change has to be a change from within. You have to change the character of the man, the heart of the man. And that's what God desires. Behold, thou dost desire truth in the innermost being. And in the hidden parts of a man, thou will make him know wisdom. So where did David say wisdom comes from? It comes from God. For you to have any knowledge of God, the ways of God, to understand how to walk before God. God himself has to give you the wisdom to do that. So David is laid out his situation. He's laid out his guilt before God and said, I am absolutely guilty. So guilty, in fact, that I've been guilty from the moment I was conceived. The only hope I have is your loving kindness, your grace, your mercy in not giving me what I deserve. But if you were to judge me, you are completely justified in judge me. There is no guilt, no blame on your behalf. It's all me. I did it all. So what's the answer? You and you alone have to cure me because I can't cure me. I'm the reason I'm like this. Verse 7, purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. That reference to hyssop, if you go back and you look at God introducing even the Passover, hyssop was used to spread blood on the doorpost and the lentil of the houses. The sacrificial lamb was slain that night, and the blood was spread with hyssop. But then in the tent of meeting, when the high priest would go in and meet with God, he would sanctify all the furniture in the temple with sacrificial blood that was spread with hyssop. David knows all that. And so he is saying the same thing. Cleanse me with covenantal sacrificial blood, the blood of the covenant, spreading it over me with hyssop. You cleanse me, purify me with hyssop, and then I shall be clean. Wash me. And I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness, and let the bones which thou hast broken rejoice. Both parts of that equation are God's actions. David says, You're the one that broke me down. You're the one that sent Nathan to confront me over my own guilt. You're the one who made me realize my own guilt. You're the one who brought me to the point of this repentance, and you're the one who can produce joy in me yet again. It's all up to God. Purify me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter with snow. Make me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which thou hast broken rejoice again. Hide your face from my sins. Beautiful imagery. Yeah, my sins are there. And he just said, my sins are ever before me. I see my sins all the time. But God, don't look at my sins. Turn your face away from my sins. Hide your face from my sins. And then just blot out my iniquities. Cancel them. Erase them. Get rid of them completely. Verse 10. And create in me A clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. So David is saying, I once was a man after God's own heart. I once was an upright king. I once led your people according to your law. Now I have clearly fallen to my iniquities, so you have to create in me again the clean heart, O God, and renew my steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit away from me. The spirit of God in the Old Testament would occasionally reside on people like on Saul, the previous king to David. Saul at one point, the spirit of God resided on him and he prophesied to the degree that people said, is Saul now among the sons of the prophets? And yet... Saul went mad when the spirit of God was taken away from him. So David has observed that where God has taken his spirit away. And so David can rightly plead, do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of thy salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Keep me going and make me willing to walk in your ways and by your precepts. And then once you have done that, once you have restored me, once you have strengthened my spirit again, once you have restored my awareness of your salvation and the joy that comes with that, then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. First, you have to restore me, and then I will go out and talk about you and teach sinners and transgressors that they have broken your law, and sinners who are sinning against you will be converted to you. Verse 14, David realizes, according to the law, he is guilty of blood guiltness. And so David could say, deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, thou God of my salvation. And then my tongue... Will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O oh Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. Now, David is aware that God requires nonstop sacrifice sacrifice at every Sabbath, sacrifice at the high days, sacrifice at all the feasts. God has this constant stream of blood running out of the tabernacle in the wilderness. And one of those offerings is sin and guilt offerings. And so David says, I would have brought you sin offerings if that was going to be adequate to clean up my sin. If I believed that I could kill enough oxen and enough goats to make me guiltless, I would have done that. But in this marvelous piece of theology, David says, I realize that there's no amount of sacrifices that I could bring you that would be sufficient for the depth of my own rebellion against you. I can't clean myself up, and I can't do it with enough sacrifices. Instead, David says, the real sacrifice that you pay attention to, that you react to, is a contrite heart coming before God in repentance Recognizing that only the mercy of God is sufficient to cure sin against God. So starting at verse 16, David says, For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. But you are not pleased with burnt offerings. There's no amount of sin offering. There's no amount of sacrifice David could bring to make up his adulterous murderous ways but verse 17 says the sacrifice of God the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and a contrite heart O God you will not despise so David is saying if you go before God truly penitent truly understanding your own guilt and your sin against him If your heart is broken by your own sinfulness and you're willing to get down on your face in front of him and admit your own guilt, that that's what it takes for God to be merciful to you, to be gracious to you. And that contriteness before God is worth more than all the animals and all the blood that you might bring to God. Because let's be honest, you can bring large amounts of sacrifice, You can bring animals, you can bring money, you can bring stuff to God and never have a change of heart. If I tell you, you know, you can avoid hell forever if you just kill a couple cattle, you might not have a change of heart. You'll just take me up on the insurance policy of killing some animals. And so David is saying, it's more than just the animals. Even though you require the animals, that's part of the sacrificial system that is required in your law. And even though that's the case, I realize that no amount of animals is going to be sufficient. No amount of blood is going to be sufficient to truly purge me of my sinfulness against you, God. But you know that I truly repent. You know that I am broken before you. You know that I have a contrite heart before you, God. And that, says David, is the true sacrifice that God is looking for. In verse 18, he realizes that as king, his sinfulness, you might remember Nathan said to him, your child's going to die because you gave opportunity for the unbelievers to mock God. In other words, your enemy nations that surround you who know that you are a king after God's own heart, who know that you were supposed to be advocating for the law of God, they are now able to mock your God and his law because you, the king, have so obviously sinned against your God. So if it doesn't mean that much to you, it certainly shouldn't mean that much to anybody because you're supposed to be the figurehead for all of Israel. And you've demonstrated by your activity that God's law was not all that important to you And therefore, people are mocking and they're mocking God, and that's why God took the baby. And so, David says, Look out for Zion, look out for Jerusalem. I'm the king of Jerusalem, and I have failed them. But by your own good favor, by your grace, by your own kindness, do good to Zion, build the walls of Jerusalem. And then thou wilt delight in the righteous sacrifices. Yes, the sacrifices are required by the law. Yes, the sacrifices need to continue in the temple and the tabernacle of God. Yes, the sacrifices are part of God's obedient worship. But they have to be obedient sacrifices, and they will only be acceptable to God if they are being done by a nation that is walking before him according to his own law and his own precepts. Therefore, David could say, if you're favorable, if you do good to Zion, if you sustain us and build the walls of Jerusalem, then you're going to receive sacrifices that you delight in. You will delight in righteous sacrifices and in burnt offerings, and in whole burnt offerings, and then young bulls will be offered on thine altar. That's the end of the psalm. It's David saying the only way we can restore the proper sacrifice, the proper worship of God here in Jerusalem, is if you yourself are good to us, because I, the king, have completely messed up and have given the opportunity for our enemies to mock God, you are the only solution. If you don't do it, it's not going to get done. So you've heard me say now for 22 years, and you're going to hear me say it a lot more as long as God gives me breath. On Sunday mornings, we're going to be returning to Christianity 101, and we're going to be talking about law versus grace, which Jeff told me once years ago, and I never forgot it. He said, that's your bailiwick. That's where you hang out strongest. We're going to be talking about all that because I keep saying over and over again, it has to be grace. It can't be you. It is good to know. It is so very comforting to know that even David, the man after God's own heart, could mess up so badly. I'm sure several of us right now are going, well, at least I didn't do that. At least I didn't murder somebody and take his wife. I didn't do that. Yeah, but you've done stuff just as bad. You've done stuff just as rebellious before a holy God. And it is so good to know that the people God loves have the capacity to mess up that badly before God and God himself for his own covenant-keeping consistency, for his own demonstrable loyalty to his own covenants and people for that reason he is willing to forgive you time and time again despite you this is why we talk so much about the grace of God because it does lead us to the worship of God based on the character and nature of God who does for us what we simply cannot do for ourselves and that teaching just absolutely permeates the Bible even in Psalm 51. Don't you love that Mm psalm? It did me so much good through the years. Because I know me. And every once in a while, I'm embarrassed to be in the same room with me. (laughs) And I go back and read that psalm and think, that's right. Get your eyes off you. Quit gazing at your navel. There's nothing in me that I'm going to find that I'm going to go, oh, but I'm not that bad. Mm -hmm. Instead, just keep your eyes focused on God. Keep your eyes focused on his word. Keep your eyes focused on Christ and the everlasting new covenant and God's loyalty to that covenant he made with you because that is the only solution to your guilt. Questions?
0: It seems to me that
1: one of the primary reasons David is described as a man after God's own heart is that when he is called out for his sin, his immediate
0: response is I have sinned against the Lord. Yeah. Most of us we become defensive, we try to justify what we've done, yeah. etc.
1: It takes a while for us to admit what David said immediately. Yeah. And you know that's that was true all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Yeah. Did you eat of the tree, Adam? Well, the woman you gave me <laughs> Deflect. It's her. She did it. The woman goes, well, the serpent, he did beguile me. And I mean, we just, yeah, (laughs) we just deflect and justify. It's our nature. And you're right. David admitted his own guilt before God. And that is a man after God's own heart. And I think that that's a lesson we all need to learn.
0: Thank you.